Have you had the years actually worked in a, say, um, domestic violence charity for trans victims, domestic violence, or an immigration or asylum charity helping illegal immigrants? If you've done that silently for years and nobody knows about it, you know, what's the point? And in fact, if you're like a middle-class cishet white guy who does all that, well, the world would consider you to be just another middle-class cishet white guy. You know, they wouldn't know about your years of solitary service helping people. So this is it. This is it. The whole point is to be seen to be doing something, to be to, to partake in this pastime and hobby. In the same, it's definitely the same way that you know um, people who say support same football team. They'll put it in their bio on social media. You know, they they want people to know about it. It's really important to them. It's they don't just want to sit by themselves or, you know, in a stadium or watching TV supporting their team. They want everyone to know that they support their team because that's half the point. Um, and it's the same with what I call left-wing hobbyists. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro and with me is Ricky Allpart. Ricky, would you consider yourself a leftist stooge? No, I would not. Oh, well. Okay, well that's good, that's good. I consider myself politically homeless, is what I guess. Oh, I was going to say, are you alt-right? That does sound cool. It does sound a bit rock and roll, but I I don't really know what it is. Well, we don't know what these terms mean. We don't even know, you know, how class and, and race and age and sex factor into all these things, so... We've lined up David Swift. He's going to sort it all out for us. I'm confident at the end of this um, that you know you'll you'll have a better better handle on um, what what you're doing. But first, you always know we tell you the truth here at the New Flesh Podcast, and the truth is we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show. We read all the reviews, so post away. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about the show. Uh, a great place to get in touch with us. Uh, a guaranteed response. And finally. Please tell your friends about the show. If they don't like it, I mean, I don't know. Dump them. All right? On with the show. David Swift is a historian and writer specialising on the contemporary left. He has published in a broad range of academic journals and taught at various universities in the UK and overseas. David's books include Left for Itself, Left-Wing Hobbyists and Performative Radicalism, and most recently, The Identity Myth, Why We Need to Embrace Our Differences to Beat Inequality. David, welcome to The New Flesh. Thanks, lads. Thanks for having me. Now, fairly recently, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson stepped down as leader of the Tory party and was replaced by Britain's first Prime Minister of Asian heritage, Rishi Sunak. Uh, Sections of the left have been obsessed with identity and race for a while now, and I'm interested to know if there was any celebration from identitarians to the fact that that Rishi Sunak was was elevated to to Britain's top job. Um, That's not Definitely, I would say the short answer is definitely not. No, um, I think that the longer, more complicated answer is there are sort of, there are plenty of people who were were sort of saying, okay, let's let's remark upon this and say it's an achievement, that's an important achievement. Um, but they would also then say, but of course, just because somebody happens to be Asian doesn't necessarily mean that they're a good <laughs> they're a good person or they have good politics or. Um, you know, they're becoming prime ministers should be is a good thing for the country. I think it's it's definitely complicated certain things because not only do you have Rishi Sunak as prime minister, you now also have uh, Suella Broughton as Home Secretary in charge of immigration. She herself is um, of Asian descent, and again, she's very uh, hostile to immigration, and and this really has caused a lot of um, uh, consternation among certain people. Who it's maybe. You know, showing the for them to reevaluate their language, really, and the way they talk about race. 
isn't it it's it's a strange situation because i i suppose you know it seems like the the tories at least uh that they, they do seem quite to use the left's language diverse uh in 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 many ways and uh so when it, we get very strange uh, uh criticism um it, you know so, it, sometimes you get the feeling as if they're being told they're not the right ones you know it's like oh Rishi, Rishi you're not the right one you know Suella, you're not the right one and it's like what do you mean the right one it's, it's a bit like that that moment in in the office uh when Brent says you know oh, you know I you know oh it's the other one the other what you know <laughs> exactly yeah exactly yeah and in fact there was a, a Labour MP backbench Labour MP who said something like this about I think it was Quasi Quarteng who was the short-lived Chancellor uh, said that he's not really black or something, or, you know, it, oh, no, it was like if you listened to or something, you wouldn't think he was black. And actually, the historian David Starkey got into trouble about 10 years ago for saying something from the opposite direction, like talking about a late, in a, in a positive way, actually saying, oh, you wouldn't think he was black to listen to him. And, and yeah, that's where we are now, when you have people sort of from the left saying, oh, yeah, such, sure, such and such maybe black or Asian, but not really. You know? uh, I think we definitely saw a lot of this and set U.S. commentators uh, after the last presidential election in 2020 when, you know, Trump's vote share went up amongst every ethnic group, harsh from white people. You know, Hispanic Americans, Muslim Americans, African Americans, they wanted an increased vote share for Trump. And yeah, sure, you have this idea now of political whiteness and uh, how, you know, just because black people might be, uh, sorry, just because, you know, the color of your skin might be black, if you're a Republican or you support certain policies, you are politically white. Um, and in fact, yeah, I just literally yesterday, I think I read in uh, the Atlantic uh, magazine in the US about how, you know, just because you're Hispanic doesn't mean you can't be a white supremacist. Right? This was after a Hispanic, well, uh, he'll go out to people in Texas and, and they were saying, oh yeah, just because he's Hispanic doesn't mean you can't be a white supremacist. So this is it. I think, you know, as, as societies become more diverse, um, like the Tory party has been, it's going to really challenge a lot of certain, you know, lazy assumptions about identity and stuff. Because, yeah, as you get more high-profile right-wing um, uh, right-wing politicians or, or, you know, black or Asian origin, and indeed, as you get more sort of serial killers and terrorists, the, you know, white supremacists of, of, of different origins, it's really going to challenge a lot of these identitarian assumptions. Well, perhaps we can step. We'll, we'll circle back to the left, I'm sure, but. Uh... Would you mind talking us through your own personal political journey? Because it's been a very tumultuous time in politics over the last few years. And I think it's interesting to get a sense of how people have navigated this personally, like where you've come from on the political spectrum and perhaps maybe where you are where you feel like you are, not that you need to stay there. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I definitely say, I definitely consider myself to be on the left. I think the left is a pretty broad church, just the way, same way, you know, conservatism uh, or the right can be a broad church. And I think definitely that somebody like Ian Starmer, the UK Labour leader, even though he, uh, even though he certainly feels obliged to pay lip service to certain identitarian shipments, I don't think he believes in them. I think he's surrounded by good people like Claire Ainsley, who wrote this great book on, on the new working class recently. Um, and and people like that really, even actually there's a, there's a Labour uh, politician called Wes Streeting, and he's a shadow health secretary currently. And he again used to be very pro Stonewall, one of the major LGBT, specifically T charities now in the UK. 
And uh, that, and, and he used to be, I mean, he's, he's from the sort of economic right of the party, you know, which is like a young Tony Blair in some ways. And he recently actually was on the radio about a year ago saying, you know, men have penises, women have vaginas, that's the end of it. And I was really pleasantly surprised, a surprised to hear or see that from him especially, right? Because he traditionally has been more of a sort of double liberals within the Labour Party, you know. And Tony Blair, like on economics, so happy to have free movement of capital and goods and people. Uh, but also very liberal on on all of their sort of cultural issues, and actually, I think it was um, encouraging for me to see someone like him make this statement because he's a very ambitious guy. You know, he wants to succeed. He has Dharma. He wants to be prime minister one day. And you know, for someone like him, well, as I say, in the past has been very close to Stonewall to make such a statement like that. It's encouraging for me actually that there is room in the British Labour Party for more moderate sort of cultural values, if you like, or or what used to be called liberal cultural values a few years ago. Even though I'm often associated with the sort of blue labor movement uh, here in the UK, um, suppose I am in some ways a bit of a cultural liberal. And my sort of critique of um, the sort of cultural left of the Labour Party has mostly been around practicality. It's mostly been around saying that, listen, you know, various constituencies that you might consider to be natural supporters of the left not just a fabled white working class, but also yeah, people with black and Asian diverse backgrounds. Very often they they, they are appalled and, and, and repelled by, you know, some of these um some of these attitudes actually and to make total suicide to keep pushing policies like open borders or you know some of the more radical uh, you know abolish the family, abolish the police kind of stuff. Um so yeah personally even though I you know even though definitely I sort of write a lot about you know criticizing the sort of excesses of the liberal left. I'm pretty liberal myself still in some ways. I mean, I live, I, right now I live in Israel, actually. You know what you said, in the UK, I'm actually in Israel, where my wife's from and where she works. And it's interesting here, right? Because Israel is one of the few countries in the world, certainly one of the few developed economies, where they have, you know, an above replacement fertility rate, right? I think the average number of kids here is like 2.7 per couple or something, which is interesting because this is a country where most people are, you know, white. If you like, uh, obviously, it's debatable whether Jews are truly white, but whatever, that's, that's not for me to say. Uh, it's obviously a developed economy, et cetera. They're pretty liberal in terms of LGBT stuff and things like that, uh, in terms of even smoke weed in the streets, for example. I can't think. But again, they have to be very big on family. You know, they're very big on family. They're very big on uh, sort of a, 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 like pro maternal policies as well, right? They have to get. But also a, a bit hawkish as well. Like well, there's a wonderful marriage of 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 supportive liberal stuff, which is this this total, I don't know, like like SWAT team approach to stuff. It, it's weird. Yeah, I was at a wedding a couple, like in Universe because because you can. I mean, Israel is very strange in many ways. And one of the strange things is often the younger people are more right wing. Right, it's kind of the adults you get is doing more liberal on 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 the on the big issue of of the place. In many ways, because like the people of 60 years of old remember a very different Israel from back in the day when it was much more weaker and vulnerable and much more socialist, etc. Uh, in part because younger people, obviously everyone has to go to the army, right? Age 18 to 21, no excuses, men and women, you know, you're in the, the military for three years. So high school students coming towards graduating high school, they're not talking about, oh, we're gonna, you know, where are you gonna go to college or you're gonna go traveling? They're gonna go, what are you gonna do in the army? That's you know, so have that with some young people. And again, I was at a wedding about a year ago, and there was this guy there, big hipster beard, you know, nose ring, stuff like this. And um, we were talking about politics. And he said, oh, you know, he said, you know, what do you, he said to me, what do you do? I said, well, you know, I'm a writer about this kind of thing. He said, oh, 
like a Ibram X Kennedy. I went, not like Ibram X Kennedy. Quirk. Exactly you know, like that. Good. Exactly like that. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I command his uh, paychecks as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. I mean, I love, I love his royalty paycheck, absolutely. Um, and then I went, no, no, actually, I'm quite critical of this stuff like that. He went, oh, so like Jordan Peterson. I went, well, I'm not quite sure. You know, it's a two, two, you know, I'm not actually I'm this these guys. It doesn't sound like very uh, calm wedding talk. Yeah. I don't mention, <laughs> I, outside of this podcast, I don't talk about Jordan Peterson. No. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's it, because I'd be fair play to this guy for, um, you know, for, for, for how we kind of up some people. <laughs> anyway. And uh, I said, no. So I tried to basically say there's this writer that is Israeli paper called Harrods who my wife says I'm quite like actually, and he's a sort of old school that, you know, focused on things like class and material stuff and is quite critical of the excesses of the identitarian web. And I basically said to him, you know, do you ever read Harrods, this, this like nephew newspaper? He went, if I ever saw Harrods, I'd take a shit on it or something like that. <laughs> Turns out this guy in some kind of militia who goes around patrolling like the Egyptian border to see if any asylum sees a trying to sneak in and, and he shoots them like it bit and his buddies go around with the rifles and stuff and and he had a nose ring. <laughs> he had this big hips the beard and all this kind of stuff. Is he, he undercover? You know, well exactly what's going exactly <laughs> some kind of group. You know, it's it's really weird. Because I thought look if this guy was in London, I'm sure in you know so like Sydney or Melbourne or wherever, you think, okay, yeah, you know, maybe you could definitely tell this guy's politics probably. Yeah, he's a and he would think and, and, and exactly. he supports you definitely might miss uh, you know, know. some and be like you know, <laughs> yeah 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 exactly. um, yeah so, so, so Israel is a strange place because you do have liberalism in many ways and um, but but it, it coincides with you know so nationalistic and militaristic policies especially in places where you wouldn't necessarily expect them so uh, you know I guess what I'm saying is I think that you can definitely have I sort of have, I, I don't think as people like, say, Morris Glassman or, or John uh, John Gray, um, you know, to, to quote sort of two more than to your post liberal writers in the UK, actually. So, Morris Glassman's associated with Blue Labour and John Gray is a you know, well known philosopher. And these two guys and, and people like them, like Louise Perry, for example, who I know we've had on the show in the past, you know, they would really sort of lament that actually liberal values are, are, are not really compatible with a healthy, healthy society and economy and, and, and nation. And, 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 and it's really sort of difficult to reconcile these things. And I'm not, I'm not quite sure, actually. You know, I think you can have uh, a sort of successful left. I think you can have a successful economy and national identity and national cohesion with, and indeed, you know, family values and, and, uh, and above replacement facility rates and all the rest of it. And actually, you can have sort of individual liberalism as well, I think. So, you know, even though it's, it's, it's strange to me how far certain sections of the left have moved in just five or 10 years, the way, you know, people and attitudes that would have comfortably been considered on the left five or 10 years ago are now considered are quite outside that scope in some ways. I think that's a bit, you know, weird and inappropriate. But I think I can definitely consider myself on the left, both as a sort of a socialist and also as a bit of a liberal as well. A lot of people we talk to would class themselves as old school leftists. And, you know, one thing we do hear a lot is that the left has moved to the extreme and is unrecognizable to them. So, you know, what's your take on this re realignment of the left and, and the right for that matter? And do you think these labels left and right mean anything anymore? Yeah, I think it's difficult to say if they do mean anything because someone says the left, well, you know, what does that mean, right? I think for a lot of, especially younger people, and I mean, you know, even under 30, for example, under 25, they would think the left means stuff to do with the environment, to do with asylum seekers and immigration, to do with LGBT rights, especially the T, to do with Israel, Palestine. I remember 
back when I used to work in universities and I used to ask my students, um, you know, who's more of a socialist, like Jeremy Corbyn or Ed Miliband, the Labour leader before Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, and Nagel would say Jeremy Corbyn. I'd say, well, why is Jeremy Corbyn more of a socialist? And they would say things like, he's against nuclear weapons or, you know, he's really pro-Palestine and stuff like that. You know, he's, he doesn't like the US and NATO. I said, okay, fine, but does that make him a socialist? Right. These are liberal, these are liberal values actually, rather than socialist values in many ways. So yeah, I definitely think left and right are becoming sort of increasingly um, inadequate to describe people's politics. I think it's very interesting to see the, the you know, the attempted shift. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what's going on with the Liberal Party in Australia, but definitely with the with the Republicans in the US and, and with the Labour Party in the UK. You know, they've had this attempted realignment, maybe um, say with Boris Johnson, you know, in 2019 or Trump in 2016, to move away, you know, to, to get this sort of working class vote, right? The more sort of economically um, uh, net wing vote will make more culturally right wing. And, and they're, they're, they're undermined by this because obviously so many of their MPs, like their politicians and their, uh, their, their media outriders, don't believe in it, right? They, they definitely do not believe in, in higher taxes and higher levels of government spending and more regulation, et cetera. So it's awkward because in some ways they're trying to pitch that it's a new constituency of sort of, you know, economically left-wing and socially conservative boxes, but they definitely do not believe in the economic side of it. So you know, they're limited in what they can do there. Um, and then maybe it's, you know, the same with the liberals in Australia, actually, like, you know, some of them might think, okay, you know, we can maybe have, uh, it might be good for us to try and branch out more into traditional labor supporters and by appealing to everything that values being the war, I think, culture. But actually, if you don't believe in that stuff, it's, it's hard to do it. It's hard to do it. I mean, actually, it seems like the problem that the, the, the British Labour Party seemed to be having until recently, because many people like Morris Glasgow, like myself, have been saying, you know, most people in the UK are left-wing economically, but they are repelled, including black and Asian people and young people and gay people and all the rest of it. They are repelled by some of the excesses of identitarianism. So, you know, move away from that. And some people would say, but Labour can't do this, right? Labour can't pretend to be patriotic and pretend to be anti because they're clearly not, you know, the actual politicians are not and the think tanks are not and the journalists are not. But I don't know. I think he, I mean, I think Keir Starmer's doing that pretty well. Like sometimes I think he's, he's going overboard, actually. I mean, you never see Keir Starmer or a union jack like behind the wall from that language about how he's going to uh, lock up public weed smokers and force them to do community service and this kind of stuff. I mean, okay, fair enough. And, you know, I think, I think you don't, I think, as I was, as I was saying before, I don't think that certain institutions of the left, such as the UK Labour Party, are so far gone. That they are, you know, beyond redemption and can't be sort of brought back to the old school lab. And I think sort of Keir Starmer has shown that actually. I think if he was in office with a majority, um, he, I mean, things like gender recognition, right? So the Conservatives a few years ago under Theresa May were going to introduce self ID in, in the whole of the UK, right? So the thing that Richard Sunak recently blocked being introduced in Scotland, the uh, then Culture Secretary. Oh, there was an name I've forgotten, unfortunately, but uh, so so what we said. Um, so a woman who's very much on the on the cultural left of the Conservative Party wanted to introduce self ID to the UK, so people would not have to undergo any sort of hormone treatment or anything like that to change their gender. And Theresa May, you know, government was going to introduce this to Conservatives. I don't think there's any chance of that happening now under a Keir uh, under a Keir Starmer government. So it's interesting because I think ultimately it comes down to money and tax and investment and who's going to pay for stuff, right? 
I think when issues like that are less pressing, then maybe these old ideas of left and right dissipate and, and don't mean so much anymore. But when these issues come back and really hard choices have to be made about, you know, how high should taxes be, what, what size or what role should the government have in the economy? Then I think ultimately it does come down to these things and left and right do mean things again. Because as I was saying earlier, it's, it's ultimately very hard for conservatives, um, political conservatives to, to embrace, you know, left and economics. And, and, that, and that I think really does them any kind of realignment. And I think it does mean that left and right still mean something. I'm loving this discussion about the left. It's sort of like your deadbeat brother who is on heroin and steals your stuff and sells it. You know, you love him, but, you know, he's hurting you daily. So um, <laughs> I, I don't... <laughs> well, we can come at it from another another angle, perhaps, David, because I really want to get all, all of this out. So, you know, because being on the left used, used to actually be quite cool. You know, you were a sort of a rebel, well, for a little while there anyway. You, maybe you can tell me when you think that might be. But you seem to be like a rebel who cared about the little guy and the environment, but you, you had really good taste in music and films also, you know. And I know it's a cheap shot, but today the left seems just particularly the left left seems very, very uncool. Is, is, the, is this a problem? You know, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's, it's very hard to, obviously it's hard to quantify that kind of thing, right? How much does the left left of people are? Not necessarily because of policies or anything, but just because of image and aesthetics. And definitely, personally, a lot of my uh, problems with the left, sometimes I think, you know, I actually agree with a lot of what this person might be saying, you know, I'm much closer to this person than I am someone else. And yeah, I really hate you. So often it is so, it's so superficial, right? And it's, you know, it, it is just because of the, the way you act, the way someone acts on social media. Uh, yeah, maybe because of the way that they're dressed or the ridiculous hairstyle or something, I don't know. You know, so often it is superficial and it is just down to aesthetics and somebody with whom I actually have a lot in common politically. I might be sort of repelled by, and yet some of you, I don't really agree from politics, but at least I'd want to have a pint with them. You know, I wouldn't actually mind hanging out with them, even if we might disagree on politics. So for me personally, I think that's a thing. And actually, if you look at what, uh, you know, uh, focus groups, for example, say about people like Jeremy Corbyn, they say, uh, you know, oh, they do talk about aesthetics, you know, I mean, actually Corbyn's people were very good at completely reshaping his if not as to how he was perceived, but certainly how he presented himself. They made sure he always wore a sharp suit. They made sure his beard was trimmed for the first time in 40 years. Or whatever. You know, they really tried because they knew that many people who might vote for Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn and the late party uh, were actually put off by his scruffiness and by his, you know, student, you know, old school sort of student who never grew up uh, aesthetics. So yeah, I think these things can be important. I think they really can be important. I mean, if you look at Boris Johnson, Obviously, Boris Johnson, crucial to his success, what is very particular aesthetic, which allowed him to get around the fact that he's from this very privileged background because of the thing, okay, yeah, sure, but he, look, look at the way he dresses, look at the way he acts, you know, look at his whole shtick. He's, uh, he's this lovable buffoon, like rather than this sort of stone cult, you know, like operator that he really is. Like, yeah, it turns you know, it came across play. a little bit like it's a very old movie now, but there's a Dudley Moore movie called Arthur where he's like a rich, like, like, childish, you know, uh, uh, scruffy, you know. Yeah, I think similar haircut to Boris Johnson as yeah, well. Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, they both got mad hair. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. That's it. I mean, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised that the young Boris Johnson saw that, or youngish Boris Johnson saw it and thought, "Bye, go." <laughs> no, but this is how I'll, this is how I'll, you know, have my public image to to get away from the fact that you know from this quite elite background. So yeah, I think you know, I think these I think these things do matter. You know, if you look at sort of more, um, you know, people like Barack Obama, for example, I think very important to his success was that he was you know a cool customer. He was suave. He was sophisticated. Uh, he he dressed well and he, you know knew drank wine, but also he liked basketball and liked hip hop and that kind of stuff. You know, he had an interland. Um, I think it's important. I think one of the as you just going back to what you're saying before about being cool. I think a lot of the people, a lot of left wing activists now, a lot of left wing journalists don't seem to have much of a interact. You know, they don't seem to have many cultural interests apart from politics, which I think is a huge problem because obviously most people. Just, you know, to, to understate it, most people are not like that. Most people do not care about politics, including people who, you know, one should argue might but should really care about politics because their lives are crap and actually they care more about politics or maybe if, you know, politics cares about them kind of thing, they should take more of an interest. But, you know, yeah, people are put off if you just seem to be this obsessive mad who's just focused on, on, on politics. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, for example, once said that Imagine by John Men was his favorite song. Mr. Jonathan, come on, you know, is, is it really? Yeah, because it, it just shows that guy who's heard no songs, maybe. So you yes. fucking little person right me, like I'll say, imagine by John. That Boone. song, yeah. to quote the fast show, rubbish. <laughs> 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 and this is Jeremy Corbett, is it's a man who is not a teetotaler, but puts it about that he is. You know, he says a lot about it. You know, he does apparently have a glass of wine every now and then. But he, he maintained the image of being Tito. But I think, what the hell are you doing? You just show that you have some character, show that there's something to you other than just, oh, what about the Palestinians? Or what about the poor? You know, okay, yeah, what about them? Yeah, but how are you going to help them if you put people off because you see like this massive weirdo? You know? <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think it shouldn't be important, um, you know, to not seem like a, a nerd and not seem like a weirdo. But uh, unfortunately, it is in modern politics. You know, I think you've got to, you got to present yourself in a certain way. And Keir Starmer, for example, I mean, Keir Starmer is interesting, the current Labour leader, because certainly he seems, his public image seems pretty boring and state and stuff. Apparently, in, in real life, he's a bit of a laugh, you know, he, he likes a drink, he, he's a genuine fan of football and stuff, from me, you know, goes to see Arsenal, or he used to anyway, quite regularly. So he does have this hinterland, but he seems like a bit of a square. But I think that's okay because he doesn't seem like a weirdo, you know, he seems a bit, maybe a bit boring, but in a sort of generic way, he seems like a sort of terrible, like normie kind of person, you know, so he's not a weirdo, he's just not that interesting. I think that's okay for him. But generally, I think it's so important to remember that you don't put people off by being seen as, uh, as an absolute weirdo. Well, maybe David, we, we could pivot towards your book now, uh, The Identity Myth. Can, can you tell us how that project came about and, and, and who is it for? Yeah, so I think... It's, you know, it's sort of noticed for, for years, really, that, you know, in in the UK and I imagine Australia as well, that the left, however you want to constitute it, was less diverse than the population itself. Right? It, was, it, was, it was certainly was much more middle class and better educated, whiter uh, than the population itself. And very often the way activists, journalists, even some academics would talk about, say, you know, the working class or black people or Muslims or trans people or whatever. It was just this, almost this idealized 
uh, you know, I, I come of something that had no bearing to how actual real people lived and, and felt and, and, and what they believed in. And so really I thought, you know, when it comes to things like class and race and gender and sexuality, often there are images and stereotypes put about by both left and right. You know, a big thing in the UK recently has been the right, and even the US as well, the right talking about the white working class, where everyone who's white working class is assumed to be massively anti-innovation for talent. Um, and of course, that's not necessarily true. And certainly as we see with things like race, you know, the way many white people on the left talk about, say, African-Americans or black people in the UK makes it seem that they're all political radicals, when in many ways, you know, couldn't be fair from the truth. So the, the identity myth came about because I really wanted to write something that would try and correct some of these stereotypes and myths and cliches uh, and say, not only are, you know, specific groups much more complicated in terms of their culture and their, and their politics than we might assume, but really try and undermine cultural and political essentialism in the first place to say, listen, you know, people may have, because of the situation that they are in, right? So say you have a certain amount of wealth and you earn a certain amount of money. Okay, you're in a particular situation, that is true. And you have something else in common with other people in that situation. But it doesn't stem from that, that you therefore will believe in certain things and, and, and act in a certain way and have a certain kind of culture. And in fact, so often in political discourse in the media, the focus is on the culture. The focus is on, say, African-American culture and African-American identity, rather than the actual lives of, say, African-American people or the white working class or whoever. Now, David, we don't have to spend too much time on, on this next question, but do you use the term woke or wokeness? Uh, I don't think I've heard you use that term. You know, what, what, what kinds of things do we mean by these terms nowadays? Yeah, that's it. So I, I'm, I'm quite I try really to be able to not use it, you know, for that exact reason, because it's so ambiguous, you know, what's it, right? and it can be, you know, used and misused by various people with various things. And I definitely think there is such a thing as wokeness, absolutely. And I definitely think that lots of people want to be seen as it and want to be seen to be exhibiting it, right, deliberately. Not necessarily that they want to actually change anything or improve anyone else's life. And I'm certainly not saying they want to inconvenience themselves in any way but they definitely want to be associated with a certain thing. I mean, I think this is, you know, in some ways, one of the worst things to happen to politics, uh, worldwide, totally still in developed economies is the development of social media. Because on the one hand, you have people who are not, <laughs> who can't be asked to do anything, who definitely don't want to uh, inconvenience themselves or, or lose out on anything, but they certainly want to exhibit and project a certain identity. And many people absolutely want to be seen as woke and to say woke things and to do woke things. And many other people are pissed off by that. You know, they see it and, and they get angry. Um, and I think that's a big problem. So, yeah, I think for me, there's definitely this idea of wokeness because there's an incentive to always be sort of pushing the envelope on certain things, right? I actually, this might seem like a random anecdote, but I read a brilliant article about 10 years ago about football hipsterism, footballers in soccer, you know, like yeah, UK football. And this, this guy in this article was basically saying, you know, I'm so sick and tired of football hipsters because they're always talking about like they're the most the more obscure players. And if there's like some new player come on the scene, like he's yesterday's news. What about this guy? No one's ever heard of, you know? And I think that's a big thing in politics now. And I think that's a key thing to do with wokeness, right? You are saying like, oh, we should reform the police. Abolish the police. <laughs> You're saying like, oh, we should have a generous immigration policy. Yeah. Well, what is a fascist? You know what I mean? So there's this desire to always have this one-upmanship which I think is so much propelled by social media. It's so much propelled by 
an increase in higher education without commensurate jobs for their, you know, all these new newly minted master's degrees and PhDs and stuff like that, as I know all too well about. And so I think wokeness for me is this constant desire to, especially because so many people doing it to are themselves white, they are middle class, they are not gay, etc. Uh, so they feel like, you know, there's constant need to sort of outdo each other and push the envelope and say ever more, you know, provocative and controversial things. So for me, wokeness is not really about trying to change anything. It's not really about serious politics. It's not really about trying to address, address social injustice or historic injustice. It's really about the identity of, of the woke. You know, it's about them saying, hey, don't think that I'm just like all these other middle-class heterosexual white guys, you know, I'm woke. I believe it. Look at all the upset. If you've judge me by all these things I say on social media, not by my demographics. So yeah, for me, wokery, it's not really about social justice for whatever that phrase even means. It's not really about trying to change anything. It's an expression of identity in the same way. It, it, it's a modern equivalent of having a poster of Che Guevara on your, you know, on your wall or something. It's um, the modern equivalent of sticking a drawing pin through your ear and, you know, wearing like leather and going out and pogoing to the sex pistols without, you know, those people weren't trying to change the world. It was an expression. It was a, it was a, it was a youth cultural phenomenon, right? That, and, and that's what work is for me. It's a cultural phenomenon. It's not a political phenomenon. That's interesting. Well, David, the, your book's got such, uh, uh, you know, it's very, it's numbers driven. You've done got a lot of great data in there. So this, you know, might, this is another thing you can't really quantify maybe, but when I'm thinking about how to identify something, because I mean, people are always like, what is it? Define it. Is that person woke? I have a couple of markers and I don't know what you think of this. Like I've found that um, woke people, are, you know, generally I've never met a good humored woke person. So humorlessness seems to be like I go, if they're humorless, then then that's you can use that to triangulate and look at their other stuff and say oh yeah okay I think they might be woke you know because we can we encounter this all the time like where's the woke um, or whatever you want to call it I don't care what you want to call it where's where's the sitcoms where's the music where's the movies where's the where's the movement where's the books where's where's the the great books you know that we're going to have that are left over from this 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 uh, incredible movement that we all stopped our lives for for five years exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I think it's very different from campaigns or say, you know, I don't know, like redistribution, socialism and trade unions or black rights or gay rights or, or even like the early stuff about the environment. It's, it's different. Yeah. Cause you can't necessarily, uh, as you say, so yeah, that's, even just talking about music and stuff like music and films and stuff in TV, there used to be stuff like that, that you could identify as being left wing or liberal or progressive, but you can't identify like good woke films or music or TV shows, you know, because by itself, it's too scared of itself, right? It's almost like, you know, if, if you were trying to write a woke TV show, imagine being in the, in the, the writer's room, sorry, the writer's room without, and someone comes up with a line, and no matter how woke it is, somebody else would say, oh, but actually, couldn't that be, mis you know, couldn't, then doesn't that just reflect your privilege or whatever? So there's just constant, Fear and one-upmanship, etc. And actually, so my wife recently worked at so at each university in the UK, and she had these, you know, young women in her seminar group, right? So between eighteen and twenty-one, and um, some of them white, some of them, you know, uh, black or Asian, etc. Some of them from working-class backgrounds, some of them very privileged backgrounds, some of them lesbian, whatever. And I think one of the tasks she asked them to do was to sort of, I don't know, like write a manifesto or something. And they were all so scared. 
They were also scared about saying or writing the wrong thing. And these are young, well, you know, they definitely could be described as both. I'm sure they describe themselves as both. And they were also terrified about saying the wrong thing. And, and I think that's the, that's, that's it, right? That's it because it's, they, they had to have this humorousness because how dare you laugh when X is happening, you know, when still, when Y, when Y group is suffering. How can you laugh about this? You know, when whatever genocide is happening, you know. Yeah, it's yeah, it's exactly. That's it. Really. How can you laugh when someone's responding to me? That's literal fascism, whatever. It's and that and this it, it's it's because it stems from the fact that the people who are saying this are themselves not under privilege. You know, they they don't have this sort of demographic armor or the theodotypic armor of say a poor black trans person. If you're a poor black trans person, you can say whatever you want, and the woke will go okay. Fair you know, because none of them are those people, you know, it's rare enough that they're just one of those things, right? Or all black or trans, you know, it's rare enough. Um, so because they don't have that demographic armor, they don't feel they can be humorous. They don't feel that they can, um, yeah, that they can make light of the situation or have a joke because they just worry about being attacked. Now, I'm, I'm interested in your term left-wing hobbyist. Can, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so this is the idea that... One could uh, sort of part not participate, but one could sort of have an interest in the left as a hobby or pastime, rather than being something that you did. Right. So, if you think of say trade unionists historically, or any kind of rights activists, wherever's their group, you know, suffragettes looking for the vote for women, a black civil rights activists, gay rights activists, you were in a particular group. And you needed things to change, right? To be able to vote or earn money or not get beaten up or whatever it was. So you had you had uh, skin in the game, right? You know, you knew you were very, it was very important to you that your goal succeeded. Actually, for various reasons, um, you had the development of people who didn't have skin in the game, actually. You know, they, they supported various movements through altruism, which, you no, know, great, okay, that's, that's commendable. But because they didn't have skin in the game, because it really wouldn't affect them too much, whatever happened, it was more of a hobby. It was more of a pastime. You know, it wasn't really something that they needed to partake in. It was just something that they they enjoyed from the sideline. So in the same way that you might support a certain sports team, or you might be really into a certain type of music, or you know, uh, enjoy going to see French cinema or whatever, you know, it's more like a hobby or a pastime rather than something that was essential to your life. Well, some of the causes that the people on the far left take up, like, you know, fighting for drag queen story hour or an obsession with toppling statues of sordid historical figures or, you know, religious-like self-flagellation over colonization, just to name a few examples, it, it doesn't seem to make much of a material difference to the poor or, or marginalized people or people you might be an ally for. Um, you know why? Why do you think they're motivated to tackle to to tackle these niche issues, like you know, rather than say volunteer at a soup kitchen or help out at, at a local orphanage? You know. Yeah, well, I think if you volunteer at a soup kitchen, who's going to know about that, right? If you volunteer at a soup kitchen, <laughs> but it's on Twitter, did you really do it? You know, it's, that's kind of, almost like the answer to that is it is in the question, isn't it? It's because nobody would know about the whole purpose of this stuff is to do it publicly and to be seen to be doing it and to put on the social media that you are doing it, right? So yeah, if you silently go about your life doing good things for people, what's the point in that? And nobody knows about you. That's, <laughs> you know, if you had 
for years actually worked in a say um, domestic violence charity for trans victims domestic violence or an immigration or asylum charity helping illegal immigrants if you've done that silently for years and nobody knows about it you know what's the point and in fact if you're like a middle class cishet white guy who does all that well as far as the, the world would consider you to be just another middle class cishet white guy you know they wouldn't know about your years of solitary service helping people so this is it. This is it. The whole point is to be seen to be doing something, to be to, to partake in this pastime and hobby. In the same, exactly the same way that you know um, people who say support same football team, they'll put it in their bio on social media. You know, they build, they want people to know about it because it's really important to them. It's they don't just want to sit by themselves or you know in a stadium or watching TV supporting their team. They want everyone to know that they support their team because that's half the point. Um, and it's the same with, with what I call left wing hobbyists. Well, would you include, I mean, it's it's low-hanging fruit, but and who cares about Twitter? But at the same time, when you see 12 icons after someone's name, I mean, I don't have, I mean, ours is a, our podcast account, but still, I would balk at putting one flag or anything after the name of the thing. I'm like, I'm, it sends, it sends chills up my spine. So what do, you, what do you think when, you know, someone contacts you or whatever and they've just got everything, Ukraine, BLM, like, even stuff you've never even seen before. Yeah, exactly. It's it's sad. It's it's you know. It's just normally when people are say in their teens, for example, you know they have this thing which is really important to project some kind of identity and individualism and stuff, and that's fine. That's a natural part of growing up. But people tend to sort of grow out of that, you know, when they settle down and, and they get on with, and, and people actually do tend to settle down with various hobbies that they have that they're interested in, and they don't necessarily always feel the need to project it as they get older and more comfortable with their life, themselves, and their relationship, and their career, whatever. But well, the people who, who never get over that, you know, who have almost constantly have this adolescent need to say, this is who I am, this is where I stand, you know, this is the group that I'm part of. It's pretty sad, pretty sad. Um, and, and very often I think it is because they lack this demographic armor that I was talking about before, you know, that they are just a random, ordinary, you know, white middle class dude from somewhere. So they feel they've got to, they feel that's not sufficient. They've got to have something else. I actually read a piece recently. I mentioned this in the identity of actually. I mentioned how it's always the, the, the most, in some ways, I think, wokeness, if you like, identitarianism, it really has a bad effect on middle class white women in particular. Mm. Uh, because, for example, I don't feel bad about, you know, being white or being heterosexual. No, no, I don't care. That's fine. I think for a lot of middle class white women, they do because they think I'm not the lesbian or I'm not trans or I'm not black or whatever. And they actually feel bad about it. It affects their mental health. Again, not not all of them, of course. The more you know, both ones do, uh, and this is the problem because they, they think it's just not enough to be a white woman anymore. You know, you've got to be gay, you've got to be well, even to be a lesbian. I mean, this is the thing, actually. If you're a lesbian, are you trans exclusionary? You know, that's you know, it's, you're a bigot if you're a lesbian and you won't sleep with a you know, uh, trans woman, that kind of thing. So, I think there's just this need that I have some kind of identity and to associate with a certain group, um, especially if. Your identity is just pretty boring and play, and so you've got to project this online online identity. Yeah, well, it's it's increasingly hard for for upper class uh, or, or even middle class university educated millennials and Zoomers to to obtain a job that's sort of commensurate with with their degree, and it's difficult to afford a house or start a family. And 
And now this may not be true for all young left-wing radicals, but do some of them embrace cancel culture and intersectionality in some of these niche kind of topics we've been talking about? Do, do they embrace those, embrace those as a way to sort of exercise their power in a world where they don't have much economic power? I mean, is this just a, a disaffected class lashing out? Yeah, I'd absolutely say that's a huge amount of it. We're hundred percent definitely. I think you know if there were if there were better paid or more, you know, more jobs, more regular jobs in, in, in the media, in academia, in all kinds of areas where people think, you know, they deserve a job and they can work hard certain, to achieve certain degrees to get this kind of job and it's not there for them. And, yeah, they turn to the internet and they turn to, you know, abusing people online and they turn to this kind of identitarian nonsense. Yep. There's actually a great line in the, the film, The Lion King, which, you know, they don't want to go on about this because it's so appropriate. So Pamone the Meerkat says, when the world turns its back on you, you turn your back on the world. And I think that's what a lot of these people are doing. It's almost like, well, if I can't succeed in this, then at least I'm going to abuse JK Rowling or something. You know what I mean? I'm going to, it's basically sticking two fingers up to, 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 to society and to economy and say, well, actually we're going to make it all about policing language. And we're going to make it all about who, uh, you know, will say the most sort of about raw rule. Uh, publicly agree to these ridiculous creeds and shibbers and stuff. And, you know, we can make it about, okay, fine, I don't have this kind of career anymore, but I can definitely, you know, subscribe to all this nonsense. I can definitely put all these things in my biog and stuff like that, you know, and I'll be these frags and stuff. And then that gives me something at least. So, yeah, I definitely think this is a reaction to uh, sort of downward, downwardly mobile middle class graduates, absolutely, which is precisely why this, you know, they are the main. Uh, so a group of people who are who are the great proponents of this kind of thing. You know, it's it's not the kind of thing that you know working class uh, people. Um, it's not the kind of thing that most black people, for example, certainly not in Britain and America anyway, um, are actually behind. You know, if you, if you look at people, if you look at like you know, obviously mentioned at the start of this chat, recent uh, ethnic ethnic minority conservative MPs in the UK. But if you look at Democrats in the US, like Eric Adams, the new mayor of New York. Uh, Laurie Lightfoot, the outgoing mayor of Chicago, people like that, they they reject this kind of politics. Absolutely, of course they do, because they you know they 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 know what their actual communities and people like them really believe in. They don't feel the need to go along with this kind of nonsense, precisely because they are black, or they are in Laurie Lightfoot's case, black and a lesbian. So she doesn't feel the need to go along with this nonsense. Well, uh, Laurie did ban white journalists from speaking at one point uh, in in her uh, press conferences. <laughs> So she, I mean, she she should have to, she she tried to play both sides. I think and got bad by handsets. She, she just like, she just like put it on, put on her work hat for a second, and was like, oh, this this might be good. This might work. What what do you think? That's I think she tried it for a while, and then like all these crazy red rising crime rates and all this kind of stuff. And she said, oh no, I'm gonna try something else, and then yeah, just got beat, uh, attacked from both sides in the end. You know, I I think I think if she if she, like whole politician, if she felt that it might be better for her politically to do certain things, then she would. But it's not actually who she is, if that makes sense. You know, she doesn't actually, she would only do this for like political benefit. Like I said, the old Joe Biden, you know, the way Joe Biden says all kinds of crazy crap. Like, what corn, kind of ain't you know, uh, what's, what, what's the other one? You ain't black, corn pop. Um, he speaks well. I think he's another mad <laughs> thing he said. He's, <laughs> he's said all yeah. sorts of stuff. The corn pop story is. One of, that's actually one of the greatest woke sketches ever, but they don't know it. Like that's <laughs> an incredible thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's it. Again, someone like Joe Biden, who you know, he but what he used to say and do back in the eighties and nineties, you know, very, very different to the Joe Biden today. Um, 
So that's, I think, definitely politicians being politicians, if they think they have leverage to, to be gained from going in certain directions, they will. But um, at the least, at least they're doing it for sort of, in some ways, I think, at least it's almost like because there's a payoff for them, you know, they do something in exchange for something. Whereas I think with a lot of the people who don't really have anything to gain from that part and just some kind of sense of self, you know, or some kind of sense of belonging to something, I think that's really pathetic and more than anything else. So maybe with the identity myth, your book, could you maybe talk us through some of the different ways? Let's just pick out class, for instance, because this is something that comes up a lot, particularly, you know, even Ricky and I engage in this. We we we, we talk about why why doesn't the left care about class anymore? And I've heard some interesting critiques of what what I just said. So, what other ways can we uh, can we look at class in 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 relation to your book? Yeah, no, it's 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 a very interesting thing, isn't it? Because do we mean you know wealth at the way Marx would understand it, right? So Karl Marx would say, you know, you, you can earn a salad, a decent salary. But if you are forced to work for somebody else and don't own sufficient property to live off, then you are proletarian and you are non-bourgeoisie. Well, should we look at income and occupation the way has more tradition you can see? Well, now, of course, people would say, I mean, in the UK, I'm not sure what the situation is in Australia, but definitely in the UK, uh, people would say it's about housing, actually. You know, are you a private renter or do you own your own home? Because if you own your own home, whether you're a former coal miner, in you know the northeast of England, or a millionaire stockbroker in in London, then actually that you are in the certain class. And if you rent privately, whether you are a, you know university educated PhD or whether you are somebody in you know in a really bad situation, then then actually you are in the class together. Now, for me personally, whilst I can sort of see where they're coming from with this analysis of home ownership, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that private renters tend to be pretty woke. Not all this, but now at least, or you know, private renters tend now to be very consistently left wing, which they were not. As recently as the 2010 election in the UK, I think uh, there, there was no difference according to how people voted according to home ownership. Um, but now, yeah, normally homeowners now back to conservatives and private renters back to Labour. So I think, therefore, a lot of people on the left who themselves, if we were going to judge class by the older metric, would be judge middle class. But they, if you're now going to judge it by being a private renter, they can say, oh, well, we're working flats because we rent, you know. So, yeah, I think I think it's an interesting conversation to be had around what should be the, I mean, it's, it's, it's a long, long-going conversation, actually. What should be the basis of class? Should it be more material, i.e. wealth, home ownership, income, your job? Or actually, should it be something more cultural, you know, about your hobbies and your habits, et cetera? Um, it's interesting. I think it's the kind of thing that, it, it, it differs by the state of the economy. You know, if you have like a booby economy and lots of jobs and social mobility and all that kind of stuff, then maybe actually you say class is less about material things and maybe it is more about attitudes and culture and stuff like that. But I think in a, in a situation like uh, as we're in now, when, you know, there were, certainly in the UK anyway, when the economy is not doing great, when obviously there is a massive shortage of, of housing, when there's downward social mobility amongst young people, then actually maybe old, old questions about class, about wealth and ownership and property become more important. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. In, in recent times, the Labour Party in the UK and, and, and other left-wing parties around the world have, have seemingly abandoned talking about class. And we've already touched on this. And sections of the right, particularly if we think of figures like Donald Trump, 
Boris Johnson and, and others have, have taken up that cause and are, are talking about issues relating to class. As, as someone who comes from the left and is, is interested in class, how do you talk about it without being labelled a far-right nationalist? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? So I, I think that the left, since at least the left in the UK, at least since Tony Blair's time, has been saying, you know, the nation uh, or hardworking people, hardworking families. It's very much avoided talking about class in any sense. Uh, so like, you know, Barack Obama and people like that uh, uh, definitely would avoid talking about class or indeed they would deliberately say middle class. You know, in America, middle class is sort of code for working class. Having said that, more recently, people like Bernie Sanders and, and Joe Biden have been more comfortable saying working class, which is interesting. But yeah, uh, very often, actually, it's, it's the right, be it Tucker Carlson or, or someone like Boris Johnson, you know, the political right anyway, uh, and talk about working class and working class people, etc. And I think they can do that safely because a lot of people know they don't really mean it, you know, as if they don't really want to actually redistribute income or wealth or power or anything like that, you know, they're just sort of using this as code for cultural conservatives, you know, as, as they see it. But of course, yeah, so basically, I mean, to answer your question, I think you can talk about class, either you talk about class in, in, in a way about meaning, you know, wealth, control, power, opportunity, that kind of stuff, the way the left used to. The way people like Bernie Sanders can and Andy... Joe Biden does sometimes, you know, when he's when he's so condescending, kind of thing. And I think I mentioned at the start of this chat, you know, a woman called Claire Ainsley, who works in Keir Starmer's office in the UK, and she wrote a book a few years ago called The New Working Class. And she does this. She says, look, the new working class is obviously multi-ethnic. Uh, it incorporates university graduates and, and people who didn't go to university homeowners and renters, all this kind of stuff, you know, people with liberal opinions, people with more conservative opinions. Uh, and what unites them is the fact that they, you know, they have to work for a living and uh, they, 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 they are constrained by their economic circumstances. They can't just do whatever they want. They can't go and live wherever they want, have whatever kind of lifestyle they want. Their kids have to struggle where everybody else's kids have, you know. This is this is what class is. It's it's about power. It's about options. It's about control. This kind of stuff. And I think you can definitely talk about that. Um, but it's difficult because then you have people say of clearings, oh, you know, she's some kind of right winger or some like that, or she's some kind of social conservative or something. Because yeah, she doesn't. I, I think a huge problem is that that a lot many people on the left, and I assume this is the same in Australia as much as it is in the UK. They think talking about you know class or community in this sense, and talking about like a group in this sense rather than individuals is somehow reactionary or something. I think there's, there's definitely this what I call Card Kardashian-Jenner socialism, where it's all about you, you living your best life. You know? and, and, and this is not socialism. This is not class. This is, this is hyper-liberalism, actually. And it's completely, it's got nothing to do with the left. But I think you definitely get people on the left who say, well, anytime you're talking about groups of people or a community of people rather than just individuals and individual rights and individual self-expression and everyone being able to do whatever they want and somehow that's you know reactionary or it's right away in some ways and of course it's not and most people don't think that way and but i think you know if you can sort of appeal over the heads if you can just go around these people right because these people shout very loud and they are a very prominent place on social media and academia and in journalism etc fine but they are such a small minority of people. And so if you can just ignore them, if you can, if you can somehow ignore them, if you can get past them, 
And actually, Keir Starmer, to his credit, in the UK has done it. You know, he snuck past them by pretending to be one of them when he was going for leadership. And now he is the leader. He's completely screwing them over. You know, he's saying whatever, he's saying all these things about patriotism, law and order, and party values. That they, he, but there's nothing they can do because he's always a leader. He's riding high in holes. And the electorate that large really like what he's going to say. So that way you can talk about class. And so like Bernie Sanders, I think Bernie Sanders has done it because he had these left-wing bona fides for decades anyway. So it was so hard for people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the US who, you know, actually disagrees with Bernie. Bernie Sanders is much more centrist than Hale on all kinds of cultural issues. And he does talk about class. And it's very hard for anyone to say, oh, Bernie Sanders is some kind of fascist because it's just so ridiculous because he's got these left-wing bona it's a real shame in the UK, actually, that we didn't have uh, jo- a guy called John McDonnell become the Labour leader instead of Jeremy Corbyn. So John McDonnell, originally from Liverpool, like me, uh, very left-wing, just like Corbyn, and indeed, just like Corbyn, has all these beliefs on Palestine and trans people, whatever. But he's very much more focused on class and material, material stuff, whereas Corbyn's always more focused on things like you know race and gender and foreign policy and hating America and, and Israel and all that kind of stuff. So I think basically... To, to talk about class successfully, you need to mean it. You know, you need to actually want to change things and, and including inconveniencing people and taking away wealth from some people. Uh, not like, you know, Robin Hood, I just mean like redistribution and inconveniencing people, having high tax rates, et cetera. Uh, you need to mean it. You need to have bona fides. You need to be trusted on this issue. And if you are, and if you can sort of bypass the certain sections of the activist left, then, then you can do this successfully. Now, we recently spoke with Norman Finkelstein, and, and I'd love to get your take on, on something he was talking about. He, he highlighted an interesting observation about the ever-increasing categories of identity that he's seeing in the US. And, and he was saying that, that if you believe that the roughly 13% of minorities that exist in the US should be represented in positions of power, you know, like politics or in corporate boardrooms or, or C-suites, that, that uh, this sort of incentivizes a kind of arms race towards becoming one of those 13%. So people are identifying in more niche categories. For example, a woman might identify as queer to give her a slight leg up over a regular woman, you know. Uh, and this is something we're, we're kind of seeing in Australia too, where more and more people are identifying as Indigenous Australians for some reason. Now, does, this, does Norman's idea ring, ring true, true for you? Yeah, I mean, potentially, yeah, potentially. I think it depends... In some way, I mean, I'd say there's two things going on. I'd say, sure, there's that material thing, right? I mean, famous example is Elizabeth Warren, you know, the U.S. senator who... Pocahontas. Right, as Native as American. Donald you know, says. Indeed, as, you know, exactly. Uh, so that, that's a very good example of that, right? So she's identified as Native American at some point in her career to, to get some kind of advantage. And me, actually, I'm more focused on when it doesn't even bring them any kind of material advantage. You know, when they're doing it... Because they believe that there is either something wrong with not having some kind of you know specific uh, identity, or that there is they kind of fetishize and obsess over having some kind of specific niche identity. I mean, I think now of course because it's a, a very common thing for, for people young and I is to be non-binary, adult, or autistic. The two very often go together if you know from the social media. And the thing about those two identities is it's impossible to disprove. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to dress differently. You don't have to act differently. You don't have to be inconvenienced in any way. You know, if you're going to do a Rachel Belisle or someone claiming to be black, big deal. You got to you got to you got to live that for many years. You got to change your appearance and all sorts. 
if you claim to be gay or lesbian, you actually, well, if you are gay or lesbian, you have to back it up by being, you know, in a same-sex relationship. Trans, likewise, you've got to, you've got to, you know, reduce, you've got to change your appearance. You've got to be trans. But if you go a non-binary or autistic, you don't have to do anything. You just say that you are, right? And then you are. Um, I mean, I'm not seeing many people are, right? Many people genuinely are, of course. But my point is with certain identities, the, the, like, the entrance, the, the barrier to entrance is so low, right? You don't have to inconvenience yourself at all. You don't have to change anything. And definitely, I think for a lot of people, young, young people especially, they really want to do that, not because they'll get any material benefit from it, but just because they think there's something wrong with being plain old, you know, white, straight, cis, heterosexual, man, male, and poor woman. Uh, actually, there's something great about being disabled or about being non-binary or about being whatever. You know, they think that it's it's something that's desirable in and of itself, even if it's anything to be gained from it. So I think Nora Finkelstein is interesting because definitely certain countries and certain areas uh, where you where you do have, say, university places or government positions or, you know, jobs kept open for people in certain groups, absolutely in that case, you're definitely incentivized too you know, uh, claim to be a member of a certain group. But the thing is, lots of people would do it anyway, even if there was no, you know, material or economic incentive. Well, David, you've been so generous with your time. I want to give you the final word. Um, you know, how do we sum up? It's been a wide-ranging discussion, but I think it's something about the left. I want to know if, you know, because some of our listeners are, you know, might be on the fence whether, you know, which way they should go, what they should do. They want to know, is the left worth saving? What do you think? Well, it depends. It depends what you want from life. You know, I think it depends. Do you think how 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 confident are you? You know that you can sort of survive and prosper without certain things that the left can provide, like a welfare safety net and stuff like this. You know, how confident are you that if you had some kind of libertarian, uh, you know, tech bro paradise where it was everyone struggling, you know, kind of striving for themselves and stuff. How confident are you that you could survive on a completely open free market, you know, where it was just down to your individual genius and talent and hard work? A lot of people are, and good luck to them if, if that ever happened. But I think for most people, we can't, you know, we need protections of currents. We need nation states. We need welfare states. We need communities. We need these kinds of things. And I think only the left can provide that uh, as, as bad as it can be uh, in many other ways. So I think if you want these kind of protections, if you want decent healthcare and housing and stuff and all that kind of thing, then yeah, the left is worth saving. And I think really, considering just how small uh, and minuscule in many ways these identitarian people are, even if it doesn't seem that way, they seem very loud and influential, they already not. And if you leave the left and if you abandon the left, then you're abandoning these people. And I would just say, you know, to adapt to an old phrase, you know, we are the many, they are the few. So I think stick with the left and try and reform it. We have a final question that we ask all of our guests, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Ooh, good. So I'm just reading, you know, actually, I'm reading a book called The Northumbrians by this guy, Dan Jackson, which is written about Newcastle, Newcastle, England, Newcastle, Australia, unfortunately. It'd be funny if it was about Newcastle, Australia. But, uh, so it's about the northeast of England, and it's really great because book for my new book, and I'm hopefully going to be writing a book out next year about Liverpool, again, Liverpool, UK, um, about where I'm from originally, and it's basically going to be about like, history of Liverpool and culture. So I'm, I'm reading this book called Dan Jackson, The North Umbrians, which I definitely recommend to anyone who's interested in the history of northeast England, <laughs> in case anyone is. Anyway. We always love to hear people's recommendations. It always gives us a lot of, lot of ideas, a lot of inspiration, and... Um, 
you know, Dave, uh, we need you to come back, David. We, we, you need, we, there's so much more to talk uh, talk about. So please say you'll come back. I am the Well, the, the book is called The Identity Myth, Why We Need to Embrace Our Differences to Beat Inequality, and we recommend everyone pick that up. Uh, David, uh, how can people follow you? Are you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, David Swift 87. I'm not a prolific tweeter, but occasionally I'll tweet, you know, stuff that I've written or whatever, so you can follow me on Twitter, David Swift 87. Excellent. Thanks, David. Yes, right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.